Hello, and welcome to Weed and Grub. Dun dun. Should we start with my massive apology? What do you mean, should we? Ugh, we must. Everyone, I am so sorry. I I said the wrong fish last week. I uh, I am the granddaughter, daughter, and sister of three generations of fishery scientists. And I should have known better when I was talking about the cuttlefish making its nest into a beautiful, perfect mathematical mandala. Um, it's not a cuttlefish, it's a pufferfish. Yes, it is. Oof. I'm so sorry. I feel sick about it. I Major apologies to all the pufferfish out there who work so hard on their beautiful mandala-like nests. To try and get laid. To, do, <laughs> to try and hook up with other pufferfish, which must be very difficult because they're spiny little fuckers. Have you seen what happens when they get excited? Yeah. It's got to be a tough road. <laughs> pufferfish sex has got to be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess they lay eggs and that's what the nest is for. Maybe they don't actually interact. Anyway, so sorry to all the pufferfish out there. I got it so wrong. I named a cephalopod that, you know, is magical and glows all kinds of different colors, uh, you know, like it's cephalopod cousins, like the octopus. You know, cuttlefish are amazing. They're magical. They look like little frilly bars of soap with a skirt. They change colors. There's a uh, cuttlefish called the... Um, You're just playing both sides of the fence and now trying no. to double down <laughs> on showing an education. There's, a, there, there's an amazing cuttlefish, if you've never seen it, called the flamboyant cuttlefish, which you and I saw at the Monterey Aquarium it's when we quite were incredible. high on edibles. Yeah. And it was like a magical moment. So I, I really do love cuttlefish. Um, my sister had cuttlefish when I was a kid. I'm very fond of them. But uh, it's not the cuttlefish. It's the pufferfish. So I'm really sorry that I fucked that up and misrepresented uh, Wrongfish. I wrongfished it to our Weed and Grub audience. I'm so sorry. From the bottom of my heart, I'll do whatever it takes to um, do better moving forward. And we actually got a few letters from listeners, and I wanted to read one in particular on air that oh. we got from Julie. Oh, my God. And um, here we go. Okay. Hi, Mary Jane. Normally, I love how smart and science-y you are. Thank you for putting Mike's insane ideas into reality. But you confused a cuttlefish with a pufferfish on last week's episode. I'm not sure how you could make such a big mistake, and now I'm wondering if Mike is the smart one. He did get a good score on his ACTs and wasn't gifted in elementary school. He seems to be smart and funny and handsome. I'm sorry for being so harsh, and I simply couldn't believe it. Hope you don't mind this letter, but I had to get it off my chest. Still love you both and love Weed and Grub. Mike has never been wrong. He's great. Your bud, Julie. Thanks for writing in, Julie. Mike. (laughs) (laughs) You think I wrote that? (laughs) You really think I would write something like that to myself about you? I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm just going to have to trust you on this one. I think it's a well-known fact that I did great on my ACTs. I don't even know what an ACT is. It's like the SATs, but for the Midwest. Okay. Yeah. And you did great? What was your score? Uh, It was was good. What was it? It was pretty high. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask your mom. (laughs) 
Well, uh, there might be some more letters coming down the pipe in the future, too, from other people who have written in. If we have any fisheries scientists who listen to this podcast and you knew that I was so wrong and you didn't write in to correct me, you know, thank you for restraining yourself. Um, but man, that that deserves like a, a fish in the face, <laughs> you know? Yes, a, fish a, slap. A fish slap. <laughs> really, not with a puffer fish, though, because ouch. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what up, Mary Jane? How's it going, Mike? Good. Welcome to Weed and Grub, everyone. This is a podcast about comedy. Cannabis. Culture. Cooking. Calling shit out. And uh, calamity. Calamities. And cephalopods. <laughs> and cephalopods. And puffer fish. Oh, man. Oh, well, my goodness. Um, and I, our VIB this week, our incredible VIB, uh, Stephanie Shepard. I'm so excited for everyone to hear our conversation with her because that conversation is about social justice. Yes, it is. Uh, great conversation. Before we get to it, we do have a couple of things that we need to get to. Yes. Starting with what? the news. Oh, yeah. Let's get to the news. Okay. This is a really interesting story this week. I'm so excited. 100%. So the Grubla Gazette is presented by OCB Rolling Papers, the largest rolling paper brand in the world, crafted naturally since 1918. OCB offers a full line of plant-to-puff papers made with sustainable fibers farmed from within a 500-kilometer radius of their facility in France, which is powered by 100% green energy. In 2020, OCB rolled out America's first ultra-thin, slow-burning bamboo rolling papers and cones. They're even burning, no-tear, GMO-free, vegan, and and they know that it's a cuddle, a puffer fish. Damn it! <laughs> Not all rolling papers are created equal. OCB offers a premium smoking experience that we call Harmony on High. Uh, <laughs> ask for OCB wherever you buy your papers and sample their entire line of products. Plus, visit OCBUSA.com and follow OCB on Instagram at OCB underscore USA. Thank you so much for your support this year, OCB. It has meant so much to us. And if you, the listeners, like what we do, please check out the companies that support us. Put it in your stocking, stuff it, and then stuff a rolling paper with something to light and yep. enjoy. They've got great cones. Yeah, they do. They're good for those of us who can't roll. And if you know how to roll, they have great paper, and then somebody will accuse you of using a cone even though you know how to roll a joint. I was so mad about that. I rolled that perfect joint. I did it myself. It was perfect. (laughs) So our story this week is all over the news because it's big news. This particular story that I've pulled up, I'm reading from thenationaldesk.com. And it's about San Francisco suspending the cannabis business tax. An ordinance suspending that tax was unanimously approved by city supervisors on Tuesday. And the ordinance's author, uh, Supervisor Raphael Mandelman, said in a statement that suspending the business tax on cannabis will help support legal cannabis retailers as they struggle to compete with illegal cannabis sellers. In a tweet, he said, cannabis businesses create good jobs for San Franciscans and provide safe, regulated products to their customers. And now is not a time to impose a new tax on small businesses that are just getting established and trying to compete with illicit operators. And that's in reference to California just raising the cultivation tax. So the crazy thing about California cannabis law, Prop 64, when it was passed, has four, like you're taxed at every level, basically. The cultivation tax is paid by the growers, and then distributors are also taxed, and then there's a state and a local excise tax, which is paid by like the storefronts. Jesus Christ, it's like Ticketmaster. I know, a fee, just a fee fee. A fee fee. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the tax that you and I pay when we go to the dispensary and buy the weed to smoke it. So they're making money hand over fist, and also cannabis prices are dropping right now. So so to raise taxes at a time like this is just absolutely fucking insane, and everyone is suffering. All of the cultivators and licensed businesses are really struggling because the price per pound is falling. The black market or the traditional market or the legacy market or the unregulated market or whatever you want to call it. The place where cash works. The unlicensed market is thriving. 
and it's just really hard. So um, the San Francisco, the whole city is basically suspending this business tax, which is um, a one to five percent tax on gross receipts for the rest of uh, or for, for all of next year. Amazing. Yeah. Um, you should not be punished for trying to follow the rules and do something on the up and up. It's fucking crazy. It's crazy. So the very idea that San Francisco has enough um, foresight to be yeah. like, we are not only losing like business and opportunity and penalizing people for following the rules and trying to like start a business, but other businesses are thriving that we're not getting a taste of. We're not able to wet our little beaks on this other side. Right. So, and that was part of the deal with on. Prop 64 was the sort of promise made by the architects of that law was that they were, it was going to stamp out the illicit market, but the tax structure is just crippling. I mean, it's like 35% in some places. That's the worst surprise I can think of. Right. I hate when something is like $19.95 and then it gets rung up and it's like 26 and you're like, wait, what? What? What's happening (laughs) now? And then the government's like, you already said you wanted it. (laughs) It's crazy. So kind of like hand in hand with this story um, is another story about Michael Steinmetz, who's the CEO and founder of Flocana, one of our favorite cannabis companies here in California. And he penned an op-ed after California said it was going to raise this tax on cultivators saying, you know what, fuck you. I'm going to withhold, I don't know if he wrote fuck you, but he said, I'm going to withhold my tax and I'm going to um, put it in an escrow account until you fix this stuff. And I'm also going to encourage other cannabis businesses to do the same. Like, let's withhold this tax. It's not that we're not going to pay it. We're just going to put it aside in, a, in an escrow account until these regulations are fixed. And the industry does something to rescue the people who are struggling. Like these people are like from the grower on up, all of cannabis in California is a real fucking mess. It is a mess. And it's not, I love that he's not saying I shouldn't pay my fair share for being a part of a system that I believe in. He's saying like, make the system fair and then I'll pay my fair share. That's right. There's a quote. He says, the only way to fix this whole, the, you know, broken system is to override local control and trust the majority of California citizens who voted in favor of cannabis legalization and wish to see the industry thrive. So he's asking for the cultivation tax, which right now is a little over 150 bucks for a pound of flour. I'm going to puke. Per pound. That's 150 bucks. He's saying that should be removed altogether. Just get rid of it. And, um... Yeah, I mean, he's you know he's just it's it's amazing that he is taking this very strong stance and encouraging other people to do the same. And I'm going to learn a lot more about it because I'm going this weekend to the Emerald Cup in Santa Rosa, and Andrew D'Angelo is actually leading a panel on um, all sorts of stuff, regulations and everything. And I think taxation is going to be a big part of it. Well, of course it will be because on last week's episode too, we were talking about, or maybe a couple, maybe it was six episodes ago, could have been four. Um, <laughs> we were talking about the Republican bill that was right. just pushed. That is like a one to three percent tax overall instead of the Democratic bill, which is one hundred and seventy nine percent. Right, it's three percent versus twenty five percent. Right. So even yeah. at like, uh, so at the state level, California is fucking up, but at a city level, San Francisco goes like we're gonna make a change Mm -hmm. and at the federal level the republicans are like we might have the moves to make this happen federally and be heroes what a surprise that it would actually take fucking republicans to get weed legalized or at least decriminalized so that you know states can choose what to do at a federal level oh fucking interesting so interesting what a crazy time in the world in so many ways and especially in the cannabis industry it's really I don't know. You just never know what's gonna co- what's coming next. You really don't. Yeah. And as 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 much as um, 
I talk to you off pod about, you know, Republicans, Democrats, progressive and all of these things. And then uh, single issue voters in the cannabis industry right. who are just like, whoever is going to get weed where I needed to go is who I'm voting for. Yeah. I'm a single issue person. Yep. And uh, here we are with the Republicans kind of taking control of the poll. It's fucking interesting. <clears throat> So uh, we will continue to bring you stories like this and and report on it. And um, I'm really excited to go to the Emerald Cup. And then I'm actually going to Mendocino for the first time for a couple days after that. So I'm going to get some on the ground stories and I'm really excited to come back and talk to you about them. Very cool. And if anybody is going to Hall of Flowers or the Emerald Cup, hit us up in the DMs at Weed and Grub and say, hey, and maybe we can all link up and uh, chow down. Slide on in there. We have uh, RSVP'd to some parties in Palm Springs that I'm really stoked to go to. They're all going to be very hazy. <laughs> <laughs> the future is hazy. It's going to be great. Wait, um, what sneakers are you going to wear? Because I feel like they need to be walkable, yet if if we're on like a grassy terrain, you don't want to scuff the honeys. I got my beautiful carbon fiber babies that I got for the Outside Lands Festival, and they're holding up. Like They need a good scrub, but man, you've made me into a Nike a Nike person. Cool. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Oh, I just got another letter. Mary Jane. <laughs> it seems that yet again, oh, this one's from Julie. Oh. Mike is a uh, phenomenal friend who loves having you have comfort on your feet. Wow. He must have gotten right around a 30 to 32 on his ACTs. Huh. Uh. <laughs> That's so crazy. What a cool... Thanks, Julie. Great. Thanks, Julie. <laughs> Thanks for your input. <laughs> Wowzer, cadowsers. Well, um, uh, we have such a great interview. Do you want to dive right into our Buzz of the Week and yes. then get to um, Stephanie? Our VIB. Yes, let's do it. Okay. Do you want to go first or second on Buzz of the Week? I will... You go first. You want me to go first? Yep. Well, who do you want me to take? That's what I was going to say. I couldn't figure it out. I panicked. We're double-butted. I did a panic. I know. We're, I a, we are very double-butted. I had a panic. You go first. I'll go first. And how about if I take T. Jones 0711? Hell yes. Hell yeah. That, While I pull up these delicious pies. Pie on our Instagram. On lock. We got some sweet DMs. So my butt of the week this week is Tyler Jones at tjones0711, who wrote in and said, we are really feeling pies this weekend. Blackberry, pumpkin, and chocolate coconut cream. We finished off the day with chicken pot pies. Ooh, love a savory finish. And these pictures are crazy. So we're going to put them on our Instagram for this app. That coconut cream looks divine. The pumpkin looks incredible. Ah, fruit pie? I'm usually against it, but boy, oh boy, I love the flaky crust on this one. So thank you, Tyler, and uh, congratulations to your mouth. And thanks for the pie porn. I mean, pie porn is it. always send us these things. Yeah. Oh, can I also add for Tyler, um, your initial pie slice lift onto the plate is so clean. I would love to know what the technique is because that first slice is always a disaster that crumbles into the plate and then you finally get good pieces because you can slide the server underneath each successive slice, but these are first slice clean. I'll tell you what I think I'm guessing happened is a correct uh, sectioning of the pie into perfect slices and then a pie server. You think it's a pie server? Oh, I mean, there's a pie server on here. Is the key a good type of pie server? I do not have one. If you're looking for something to get me for Christmas, uh, yeah, I would like a good pie server in my life. It's key to getting that first slice out. Understood. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm on the hunt. Okay. 
Wow. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Tyler. Not only are you a butt of the week, but you're getting gifts coming people's way. <laughs> Our second butt of the week is also all about delicious food and f- food porn because we put some on our IG after you made that incredible dish from Eric Kim, who is a cooking writer for the New York Times Food Desk and uh, MIT Cooking and the author of Korean American. Coming out in March. Yep. And um, is he a chef? Does he call himself chef? Chef Kim? I don't know. I would love to have him on the pod to ask him that. Yeah. Well, his Instagram is at Eric June Ho, J-O-O-N-H-O. He's a fantastic follow. His recipes are crazy delicious. Like that dinner that you made was, I honestly want to hands down one of the best meals I've had all year. Thank you. And it was also simple enough that I can retain it in my memory so that like if push came to shove and I had just a loose bunch of ingredients in the fridge, I can, I can get close to it each and every time. That's the other thing. I'm sorry to take your butt of the week, but (laughs) I I do want to say like the New York times and specifically his recipes and the way they do them, it is an accessible amount of ingredients in an easy to understand recipe that have big flavor results. And I, um, I'm finding that more and more with New York times and people like Eric than anywhere else. That fish sauce with the citrus zing and then the buttery, whatever that sauce was that you poured over the chicken. It was like reminiscent of the sweet and sour dipping sauce that comes with chicken McNuggets and McDonald's, but like for a grown ass fucking evolved palate, it was the same, like it hit all the same pleasure centers, but then it was so fucking complex and interesting. And I, I'm salivating right now. Yeah. And the M&M cookies, because the New York Times is doing seven days of cookie recipes for the holidays. And Eric's um M&M cookies are chewy, thin, buttery, crispy, chocolatey. I'm taking your butt again, Mary Jane. <laughs> well, you were the one who cooked the cookies and that dinner for me. So it was, but he's, he's the butt of the week for you and for, for my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Two mouth buds. Also a runner up butt of the week at Ryan Howrad. Our friend Ryan made some delicious fucking Christmas cookies that I've eaten like 16 of because he sent us home with them. And thank you. Well, let's put that on blast for a second oh, before okay. we get to Stephanie. How do you feel about a nut in a cookie? I feel great about a nut in a cookie. Love a nut. Love a nut. Yep. Walnut. Yep. Almond nut. Pro nut. Pro nut. Pecan. Yep. (laughs) Just no peanuts. Right. Right. But that's because it'll kill you. Right. But I agree. I think like a walnut and a cookie is such a like secret treat. Macadamia nuts are crazy. They're like one of the most delicious things in a cookie that could possibly exist. Okay. Yep. I'm pro nut. (laughs) You heard it here (laughs) first. first. She loves a nut in her mouth. (laughs) Oh, man. Let's get to our guest, shall we? On that? Yeah, of course. We're moving on. <laughs> to something a little more serious. <laughs> Wait, I want to read it so that I, I, I do it justice. It's important. Great. So our VIB this week is Stephanie Shepard, who is working with The Last Prisoner Project. So The Last Prisoner Project was founded in 2019 out of the belief that no one should remain incarcerated for cannabis offenses, bringing together a team of industry titans, advocates, experts, and leaders in social justice and drug policy reform. LPP, as it's known, is committed to freeing every last prisoner of the unjust war on drugs, starting with the estimated 40,000 individuals imprisoned for cannabis. And Stephanie Shepard is a development associate with LPP. In 2010, Stephanie was convicted of conspiracy to distribute 1,000 plus kilos of marijuana. As a first-time nonviolent offender, Stephanie was sentenced to 10 years in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for essentially serving as a caretaker to an individual involved in the conspiracy. Today, Stephanie is adamantly working towards her goal of working within the legal cannabis industry while advocating with LPP in the fight for restorative justice. I loved this conversation. I can't wait to meet Stephanie in real life and hang out with her again and have her back and continue to follow her journey. So 
yeah, it was just great. 100%. Well, here to share her story without further ado is Stephanie Shepard. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I was just telling Mary Jane, I love the podcast. Um, two of my favorite things, cannabis and food. So it's going to be good. <laughs> well, we usually end an interview talking about food. So do you mind if we can kind of bring it full circle at the end of this, but start with uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself and your story? Of course. Um my name is Stephanie Shepard, and I work for the Last Prisoner Project. I've worked with Last Prisoner Project for a couple of years, but only officially as a staff member for the past year. Um, I started as a constituent. I was convicted of conspiracy to distribute a thousand or more kilos of marijuana in New York in 2010 and I received a 10-year sentence. First time, nonviolent, 10-year mandatory minimum. Um, I did nine of those years. I got out in 2019, and it's been a a journey. Um, Doing the time is one thing, but uh, getting out and trying to re-enter society is just very different. Um, it's much harder than I thought it would be. I sold real estate in New York, so I got out and I thought, I'll be fine. And I got out and I did not really anticipate the trauma that comes along with with prison and re-entering society after being locked up for nine years. So um, it took me a while to kind of regain my confidence and regain my place in society, which I'm still working on. But working with LPP has has definitely helped in that. We were reading in an interview that you were on a plane and you were looking around at everyone on their phones, everybody, and you had that moment of realization where you felt more comfortable being back incarcerated than being on that plane at that moment, which is, um, it, it, I mean, I don't know. It's really fucking hard to like wrap my head around. I was hoping maybe you could talk a bit about that. Definitely. Um, during my incarceration, I traveled alone four times while in custody incarcerated. So the thought that I'm being incarcerated for the protection or the safety of society is is beyond me when you're putting me on a commercial flight the first time i took a commercial flight transferring prisons i had on my gray russell sweats which already was a no-go for me i also love fashion and food and cannabis and uh i had on my gray russell sweats and my mesh bag so you can see what's in it and no phone, just a letter from the warden with my mugshot on it and an explanation that I am a prisoner and I'm transferring prisons. I had no ID to show. And as I approached the, the ID counter, and you know, they say, give me your ID, I hand them my prison ID. 
and immediately, you know, they're not prepared for that. So she looks at it and looks at me and says, hold on just a minute. I'm going to need a supervisor over here. So now I get some extra pat downs and I just feel so uncomfortable seeing everybody in their regular clothes and on their phones and carrying the bag they want to carry. Hmm. Um, they gave me $17 to go to the airport and I had to fight for 17. They only wanted to give me 14 to get, to go to an airport. How am I going to eat? Like food is extra expensive at the airport. So I'm just so, I was feeling so out of place. Um, I remember like, what am I going to eat? This my first time out of prison in six years. And I only had enough to eat at Arby's and I only had like 27 cents left over after that. Um, so just feeling uncomfortable being out, I kind of liken it to people that, you know, really relate to their captors because I felt so uncomfortable. I wanted to get back to where I was normal, to where I didn't stand out for a negative reason. Everyone's in gray Russell sweats. Everyone's carrying mesh bags. Nobody has a phone. So that made me scared. Like, is it how it's going to be once I hit the streets? Like I'm free. And so that made me really nervous towards the end of my incarceration that I never thought I would feel because I've always been a relatively confident person. So to really be afraid of just regular life really kind of made the end of my incarceration less happy like you would think it would be like i'm getting out and more like oh my god i'm getting out wow wow yeah it was it's so strange um i was thinking god let's hurry up and get back to jail yeah and um you know i didn't feel like i could have been a threat to society because if i was they wouldn't be letting prisoners just get on commercial flight they they uh you were convicted of 1000 kilos of cannabis or more a conspiracy to distribute that amount can you tell us what the reality of your involvement with cannabis was definitely um long story short uh i had an ex-boyfriend and he sold cannabis and this is obviously before it's legal so um we're broken up he gets busted and i get a phone call from his attorney like six months after he's been incarcerated he's still at the holding facility and his attorney says hey if we can get him out on medical bond can he stay with you until sentencing and i knew he was very sick he had had a pacemaker put in um, while incarcerated. And if you can imagine, that's probably not the best medical care possible. I knew he had a heart condition and I did feel bad for him. And I agreed to allow him to stay with me if he could get out on medical bond. It's been six months since he's arrested. Clearly they weren't after me. They never came to my house, my job. I still had the same phone numbers, still drove the same car. They never once came for me. Once I agreed to go in and speak to the judge, I spoke to the judge. He said, I find this young lady responsible and credible, and I'm going to recommend he be released into her custody. One hour later, I get off the subway. My phone dings. 
it's the attorney saying they're going to fight it. They say you're involved. That Friday, I'm getting dressed to go and pick him up. And my buzzer rings. And I look at the video screen, and it's two guys, one in a DEA jacket and one in an ice jacket. And they said, we're looking for Stephanie Shepard. We have a warrant for her arrest. Unbelievable. I rang them up, and I said, come on up. I was arrested. I was let out on bond about four hours later. I stayed on pretrial for one year before going to, to trial. And the reality of it is he sold marijuana. I'm his ex-girlfriend. If I needed some marijuana, of course I'm going to go to him. I work in a real estate office where people say, hey, you know where I can get some good weed? And I don't feel like I would be a good coworker if I did not say I do. And so I said I did. So when I spoke to the government, I said, I will admit to four ounces, maybe. And they said, no, no, that's not good enough. They said, we'll give you less time, but you're going to have to admit to a thousand or more kilos. Me being the person I am, that's not going to work for me. And I remember the prosecutor saying, do you know you're going to get 10 years in prison? And I said, yes, I know that, but I didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I stuck to my guns and said, I'm only going to take responsibility for what I know. That's it. Not conspiracy of what he did. At that time, I didn't even understand conspiracy. I didn't know anyone in jail. Um, I didn't understand the system. So I was like, conspiracy. And I found out that whatever I did, my four ounces or whatever I'm I'm admitting to is in furtherance of this thousand or more kilos. Because if I wasn't buying that, then he wouldn't be doing that. And therein falls my thousand or more kilos. I went to trial. They were only offering me an eight-year plea deal. And I said, well, absolutely not. Like, if I can do eight, I can do ten. And... And my attorney said, normally with their win rate, I would not advise you to do that. But with this plea deal, you might as well go for it. So I went to trial and I was found guilty a week after a week's trial, found guilty of a thousand or more kilos and sentenced to a mandatory minimum of 10 years. And I didn't even realize He said 120 months. And I said, I don't know who speaks in months other than new new mothers of newborns and judges. And I said to my attorney, 120 months, what is that? Like I didn't even, and he grabbed my hand and he said, it's 10 years. And my sister was there that day. And I just remember her screaming. My sister, she was sitting right behind me in the first row and she just screamed. And also being the kind of person I am, instead of me screaming, which would have made more sense, I turned around to her and smiled and tried to tell her it's okay. 
don't worry, it's, it's, it's going to be all right. And I was remanded from the courtroom that day, taken away, never went home again, taken straight, straight by the marshals. And when I got behind that door, I screamed. <laughs> I screamed. And in New York, they have it set up. So you go through straight from the courtroom to the jail. There's a series of tunnels. And after processing and, and going up the elevator in my little jumpsuit, the doors open directly into the day room of of the jail. So the doors open and I see this room full of ladies just staring at me and I burst out into tears. And as time went on, I accepted it. But for the first five years, I did not accept it. Every day I felt like was going to be the day that they understood that it was a mistake. I was a good tax paying person. And they were going to say, Shepard, come to R&D. <laughs> and that was never said. And it took me five years before I really woke up and said, this is my reality. This, I'm going to do this time that I was, I was given. And at the time, I felt like it was okay, this is my punishment. But then about six years in, I'm sitting in, in uh, Victorville. Uh, it was a prison camp and legalization had happened, but we don't really get access to things that are going on outside when you're inside. And honestly, it's better in some instances that we don't know what's going on because it'll drive you nuts. Like you can't do anything about what's going on outside. So I'm just going to block it out. I'm going to hobby craft all day. I'm going to watch TV. And I stayed to watch a news uh, segment about cannabis. And so did another young lady, Evelyn LaChapelle. And we sat in the TV room Everyone else had gone to bed and she and I were sitting there and we watched the news person ask this woman, so how's business? How's, how's cannabis business? And uh, blonde hair, blue eyed lady says, oh, business is booming. And she goes on to talk about her brand and, and her packaging. And it's just, you know, in this pretty box with a pretty bow on it. And Evelyn and I look at each other and we said, business is booming. She's doing eight, I'm doing 10. And here this lady is on TV bragging about how business was booming. And that's when I think it hit both Evelyn and I. She's brown, I'm brown. This lady's blonde hair, blue eyed and bragging about business booming. And that really hurt. That did, that really hurt. Because at that time, I didn't know of any groups that were working for our release. There was no LPP for us at that point. LPP was actually just getting started. The Last Prisoner Project was just beginning to, to be a thing. So to feel so thrown away when 
business is booming outside really kind of resonated at that moment that this was going to be a very rough uh, rest of my sentence. Because knowing that business is booming outside and I'm still sitting here, it just makes you wonder why were our lives so dispendable that it didn't matter. But here she is, business is booming for her and why? Did you get out knowing that you were going to start work as an advocate and activist in the kind of work that you're doing? No, when I got out, I didn't know anything about Last Prisoner Project or anything like it. It was still not talked about. It wasn't It wasn't as it is today. It was, you know, Steve D'Angelo and, and two wonderful women, Mary Bailey and Sarah Gersten. And they were, you know, volunteering and working for free and just trying to make it an actual nonprofit organization that it is today and growing. But when I got out, no. And I was scared because I didn't know what I was going to do. I had had my real estate license taken away because of my felony. So I didn't know where I was headed at this point. I got out at 50, 50, 50. So I didn't know where I was gonna, was I gonna start a new career? What was I going to do? And shortly after I got out, Evelyn LaChapelle had been introduced to the Last Prisoner Project and invited me to hear her speak at a fundraiser in San Francisco. I had a big ankle monitor on my leg and I gotten permission from my probation officer to go to outside of my district. And I went to San Francisco and I listened to Evelyn speak and I saw a room full of people who actually cared about the people who didn't have a booming business, the people who are doing this time. And they were there at this fundraiser and giving their money and giving their time to, to give back to these people. And at that moment, I said, we all have a story and everyone's story is important and I wanna tell mine. And they gave me the opportunity to utilize their platform. And as my confidence grew, I started to look for a new job because you only have two weeks outside of prison to get a job, otherwise you can violate. So I panicked, got a job at a coffee shop and over the time of telling my story and working with LPP and starting to feel more valued, I said, I'm going to go and try to get a, a better job, a different job than what I have. Because my manager is 19 and this is not going <laughs> to work for me. So I um, started kind of looking and was inter interested in taking a position. And I told, you know, Mary, and Mary said, no, no, we've been working on something for you with us. We want you to work with us full time. We're, we weren't quite ready, but now we're going to get ready. We don't want you to go work anywhere else. And so I've been there ever since, and it's been the best move I've made because it doesn't feel like work to me. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like 
me being in the position that people are right now, 40,000 people right now in prison, but they don't have to feel like I felt like thrown away because they know that there's people outside working to get them out and to get them back into society and get their, their cases expunged so that they can have a clean record and don't have to mark, yes, that they're a felon for cannabis or for distributing a controlled substance. Whoa, that sounds a little heavy for, for marijuana. For cannabis to say a controlled substance, now you're blocking me from jobs. You're blocking me from housing because that's a question on a lease application. So now you have to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to lie? Am I not going to tell the truth? What am I, am I, if I put yes, that I am, I'm not going to have a place to live. And that, that makes you just want to work harder for them, for me. So in addition to supporting places like Less Prisoner Project, what do you say to the people who listen to this podcast, the people who are going about their day-to-day lives, whether they consume or not, um, how can people be involved and what do they need to hear about right now? Whether you consume or not, I fail to believe anyone knows someone who does not benefit from cannabis consumption. Um, If it's not you, it's definitely someone you know. Um, even before I consumed and I didn't start consuming till I was 28 years old. Like it just wasn't my thing. And I worked at the time for an NBA team, not for the NBA under the bus, but some of them, some of them consumed. All right. And I was the only girl around. So I was already kind of the outcast, you know, the girl around the guys, but then I was like, well, maybe that's a way to kind of, you know, be one of the boys. And so one day I was like, yeah, I'll join you guys. (laughs) And then I was like, wow, this is what I have been missing because I suffer from anxiety. Um, I, my mind goes quickly. So after that first time consuming, I was like, this is what I've been missing. This is what I've been looking for. This helps me focus. This helps me get things done. And so just knowing people who, who, who can benefit from it, or I always say some people, the bottom line is the dollar. And I don't think Americans want to spend their tax money incarcerating people like me. That, that I think, even if you don't care about cannabis at all, what about tax dollars? Where else can they go? Where else can those dollars go besides incarcerating someone like me for cannabis, nonviolent first time offender for cannabis? 40,000 a year per, per person, that's a lot of money. And so for people to just look at just the incarceration of people for cannabis in different ways everyone's point may be different but the outcome should be the same no one should be in prison for cannabis so what i feel like people can do is be involved 
signed petitions. We have a petition for called a time to heal. Um, it goes for to Joe Biden, President Biden, and asking him to release these prisoners like he said he would. I saw it with my own eyes. He said he would. And I'm disappointed, to be frank. I'm very disappointed. But 60 or 70% of Americans want cannabis legalization. It's getting states out of a little bit of debt. They're getting taxed heavily. And it's on one hand, they want to tax you and they want the money, but they don't want to say it's okay. And that that's what it confuses me. But the more Americans speak up and say, hey, I don't want my tax dollars to go to incarcerating people who haven't hurt anyone. As far as I know, no one's died from cannabis. But yet it's in the same category as drugs that are killing people. So deschedulization is important. Decriminalization is important. Just, I feel like normalizing cannabis will do everyone a world of good. It's, yeah. it's legal in states. So, so let's normalize its consumption instead of being like, well, take your money for it, but it's still so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we started this chat talking about food and cooking and eating and snacking. And to wrap up, like, do you cook? What's your favorite food to eat? Like, uh, what's that late night snack you go to? I'd just love to hear about um, what your favorite foods are so that when we do meet, maybe we can enjoy them together. Yeah. I do cook and I make a wonderful seafood lasagna, (gasps) truffle seafood lasagna. Anything with truffle is all right by me. And uh, I got a recipe and doctored it up a little bit. It's got lobster, it's got shrimp, it's got crab, delicious. I make the white sauce, add spinach, some tomatoes, uh, truffle oil, it's just wonderful. So that is my go-to if I really want to impress someone, go-to. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Wow, I my mouth is watering right now. <laughs> wow, well thank you so much for spending some time with us. I really hope that we can sit down with you in real life um, sometime soon. Hopefully when we when we come through Sacramento or you're in Los Angeles, please come back anytime. The work that you're doing with Last Prisoner Project is something that we would love to keep telling our listeners about and following along with as things evolve and hopefully policies change. And just thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you guys for having me. You can follow us at, we, wait, before I do that, we have to plug Stephanie. Why am I plugging us before you? <laughs> please share any plugs that you have. Um, please just go to lastprisonerproject.com and look at just some of the statistics that are out there. 
look at ways that you can be involved. We have a whole take action page. We have a letter writing campaign. If you go into a dispensary and you are privileged enough to be able to purchase cannabis and you know, you hear, would you like to roll it up for justice, which is one of our programs, please dollar for 20, whatever, just, you know, try to give back because a lot of people are, are really losing a lot of important time with their families and in the community behind cannabis that you're buying right now legally. <laughs> there, the last prisoner project, it's easy to see when you're shopping for cannabis, at least in California, I'm not sure where else, but you can check the, the label and often see if they're partnered up with brands like uh, Farmer and the Felon, for instance, I know is a really great one that we enjoy. So if it's not in, in your local dispensary, please ask, like, what are you doing about, you know, people that are in jail for essentially the same thing you're doing here. Do you guys work with any programs like ask? I think that's, that's the thing. Cause not everybody wants to participate. Some people it is about their dollar and they feel like if you're donating to us, well, what about us? That could be more money for us. No, I, I advise people to just um, definitely take care of your bud tenders, but give that dollar for 20. 100%. Awesome. Thank you awesome. so much. Thank you so much. Also, I'm just going to plug Last Prisoner Project one more time <laughs> and our Instagram at Weed and Grub. Our email is wg at weedandgrub.com. And again, thank you. And please come back and hang out with us anytime. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mary Jane. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.